But I guess we should do an intro. Yeah. Michael, you want to do the honors? Well, this is your friend, so why don't, why don't you do it this time? Okay. You're listening to Keyword Crypto Podcast. A healthy dose of skepticism in this wacky world of crypto. We, uh, what do we do on this show? We ask questions that other people aren't asking. Everyone seems to follow blindly. Uh, some of the oddest people. And we're here to, yeah, we're here to find some answers. And one thing we do on the show is we have guests on whenever we can who are smarter than us and know more. And today we have Noah Smith from Bloomberg. You have a Bloomberg opinion column, right? Bloomberg yep, opinion. That's right. Bloomberg opinion. And let's see, your, your um, PhD from University of Michigan in economics. Right. Uh, you were a professor at Stony Brook. I was. And uh, what else am I missing? That's pretty uh, much it. I mean, you got it. We went to college together. You, we went to college together. Oh, but you, you kind of, your thing was having uh, your, your econ blog on Blogspot, right? That that's was where right. you came, that, that's where No Opinion came, up, came from. When and, I was a young, uh, scrappy blogger coming up in the world. <laughs> it was just me and my back, me and my back classic when people read blogs. Yeah, yeah. Blogspot. Yeah, it wasn't even WordPress. <laughs> oh, and if you're on Twitter, he is at Noah Pinion, right? That's right. N O A H P I N I O N. It's a pun. Nice. You get it? Yeah. That's, so, I got it. Yeah, that's oh. good. <laughs> Noah, in terms of in terms of economics, what is the main thing you've been working on lately? Just so we can get an idea of where you are before we start asking you questions about crypto. Well, I'm, uh, I'm possibly going to write a book about immigration because, you know, everybody's up in arms about immigration and there's just a lot of stuff people don't realize about what's going on with immigration. And, you know, this debate is stuck, you know, 15 years ago. And so I just, uh, you know, I kind of want to get it unstuck. And so I'm, I'm hoping to write a book about that. Do you find you have a lot of influence when it comes to issues like that, or is that just something that you want to get off your chest so that it's out there? It's impossible to tell. You know, I think that um, there's some ideas that I've injected into the the mainstream that are now mainstream ideas, but I don't know if that was me or that was just like, it was time, you know, like everybody realized at the same time. So it's hard to really tell what I did. Hmm. Can you give us an example? Yeah. So like um, one of the most important facts about immigration is that immigration from Mexico basically stopped and went into reverse right around 2007, uh, which is now 12 years ago. And so since then, the number of Mexican-born people living in the United States has been falling, uh, you know, pretty much every year. And, um, and people don't realize that, like almost nobody knows that. So I just looked at the data and then I checked with some alternative data sources to make sure it was true and looked at how they did their methodology and how they counted and alternate ways of counting. And I realized everybody agrees this happened. And, um, and Mexico agrees too. They're saying, Oh, we're getting all these people back. And, uh, and that happened and people just do not understand that. Like nobody knows that. And so then I started talking about that. And now sort of everybody knows that everybody talks about it. Uh, and some economists even came out with a paper a couple of years later, you know, showing the reasons for the decline. And um, and I'm not sure if I started that or if it was just if it was just time, you know. And yeah. the re- that research was just out there. That research was that just research out there. That, that, That's right. So like Pew did, 
surveys and like uh, some other people did some analysis. Anyway, yeah. Exactly. One of the now, things did, that, well, did the it, research uh, check all three Mexican countries. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that we uh, have been saying on this show is um, hashtag Google Deeper because it seems yeah. like mm. a lot of people just aren't doing enough Googling. Uh, that like when you just do a, a little bit to more confirm research, confirm their bias. You just do a <laughs> little bit, just enough to confirm yeah. their bias, and do then a, do a little exactly bit more right. research. And then all of a sudden, you get a bunch of other econ writers to start writing about it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And you have to not, not be ashamed to be wrong. Like, so many people think if they ever admit that they were wrong about something, everyone's going to think they're stupid. You know, they'll lose face. They won't be respected as a thinker. Um, you just have to get over that and realize that, like, well, sometimes you're wrong and you go on. So what's yeah. something that you were really wrong, like, about that you had to admit to? Oh yeah, um, recently a really good one. Oh, so I uh, well, there was it was it was kind of an accident. I um, I was looking at wage trends to see whether the tax cut had resulted in wage growth, and then I found this one sort of private data source that showed this big drop in wages. Um, it was, the drop was too large to be real, but I included it anyway just as like one extra data source. Um, of course, then the Twitter algorithm put that front and center, and then um, mm-hmm. some uh, like Democratic representatives picked it up and started tweeting that wages were in free fall thanks to Trump. I was like, uh, no, no. But then it became this giant thing and, uh, and everybody got mad. And I, I, you know, wrote another column explaining why you shouldn't trust data points like that. And I just, I just shouldn't have made that graph, but you know, but that's actually, it's interesting that you would, you would, uh, you would point to that because, um, you've got, you've got 150,000 followers on Twitter, right? Hundred forty thousand. It's not hundred and forty thousand. Excuse me. Um, well, you. Uh, but when it comes to that kind of attention, like, do you feel like you have to censor yourself, or you might get in a lot of trouble? I mean, obviously, you've got to you got to make sure that you're putting out facts. But I mean, do you feel like you have to? You, do you feel like you stop yourself from saying certain things so you don't have to put up with the backlash? Oh my God! Yes, every day. Okay. Yes, right. absolutely. So we, one of our our first guests ever was Jackson Palmer, the creator of Dogecoin, who is mm. kind of, uh, and, um, awesome. and he, he he's uh you know he's got you know fifty thousand followers on on uh, Twitter too, and he recently kind of quit he quit uh, crypto I think at least he's, he's oh, taken did. a long break. Well, yeah, he's just not. I mean, he's not. He I mean, it was almost it was like a pet project that got out of control yeah. he's not even someone who believes in cryptocurrency he's actively against it so um oh wow he uh, but it got to the point where he just couldn't he was grateful to be on our show because we don't have that much of an audience so he could kind of say things he couldn't say on twitter it was liberating for him but yeah. nice. so nice. that's a, that's my way of saying you can say whatever you want Noah. no one's that was his backhanded compliment to us <laughs> Yeah. Well, do you do you guys want more viewers, or do you want to stay in the shadows? Like, you, what, what's your what's your plan here? I mean, I think ultimately we'd like to reach more of an audience to help people uh, be more skeptical and teach them how to be more skeptical and and teach them like questions to ask and also learn from and us learn from other people like better questions to ask and. That's really important yeah. to me, at least. I think we yeah. do need more of an audience so that we get more people asking questions. If, if not being skeptical, just asking, you know, just a few questions. Because when it comes to the the possibility of making money 
people just tend to believe whatever is thrown at them. I mean, people yeah. are so easily scammed. So I, I don't right. think we want to, we don't really want to stay in the shadows, but I don't know what the hell I'd do with 150,000 Twitter followers. Um, <laughs> Try anyway. not to piss them off. Except you always yeah, will piss them off. That's, that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, man. I can just imagine, like, dude, going on Twitter is like being in a room full of people with, who hate you or something. Yeah, it, it is crypt, crypto Twitter. <laughs> oh, crypto, God, Twitter crypto Twitter is really, really ridiculous. We we actually rant so about toxic. that on the show. Ugh. So we actually have some questions for you. Michael has some specific questions that are pretty good, and they're things that people who are following cryptocurrency or are interested in it, people who claim to be, you know, or people who are considered some of the more intelligent people in the space that have followers, don't seem to talk about these things. So. All right, Michael. Yeah, so I think there's, you know, we're going to probably do another episode about this down the road, but we were talking about it before of there's kind of this cult of personality in this country where if you're good at one thing, people just believe you across the board about everything you say. So, like, you know, Bill Gates was really good at creating, you know, software or an operating system. And so everyone thinks that because he's a billionaire now, he knows about economic policy. Right. And they take things that he say as gospel. Right. And I think part of it is just because they think that if they listen to him, they might be rich too one day. Mm, right. And, you know, cargo I, I cult, right? I, I mean, it's, it's cargo cult. It's crazy. Well, can you explain that? So there's this... In World War II, uh, the United States set up a bunch of little, you know, runways and bases so we could supply stuff. And um, this is in, like, Polynesia and Micronesia and places like that. And um, some people, after, so after the United States left, you know, they came back years later and found out that people had had made this cult on this island um, called the Cargo Cult, where they basically, like, dressed up as... They, like, made, you know, straw airplanes and, like, dressed up as, as flight controllers like thinking, you know, telling people that they could summon airplanes by, you know, like going through the motions of a flight controller. And they couldn't. But um, I'm sure all those places are now very rich from tourism. But um, they, you know, it doesn't work. Like just going through the motions of stuff doesn't work. And doing something that Bill Gates did won't work because it's probably just incidental. Like, you know, if you... I forget who it was who told me this. Someone really super successful said... If you ever ask a really successful person how they succeeded, and the only true answer they can give you is, I have no idea. Yeah. yeah. That's, I, I've gotten that from a lot of my friends who have become successful. Or they, just, right. or they say something like, so you got to think outside the box, or something like that. <laughs> right. 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 Think outside which, the which box. Ba- As if, that really, yeah. yeah. That means, I don't know, but I did something different. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So, I found something new. So we get we get a lot of new people into Twitter, into crypto in general. Sorry, crypto, get, not Twitter. Right. Um, <laughs> Don't get anybody into Twitter. And, it's bad. Yeah, and they come in and they see that these people were early adopters in cryptocurrency, Bitcoin and into Bitcoin, and because they just came into contact with it before somebody else did, and they just put in a hundred bucks. You know, because whatever, because they had, you know, a thousand dollars or whatever, or, and it actually kind of paid off, 
And so people say, well, this person must be a genius. They must have foresight. They must have this. You know, somebody like Tim Draper comes to mind. Are you, are you familiar with Tim Draper? Out I in am California? familiar with Tim Draper. I am. Yep. Okay. So, you know, for people who don't know, people who've listened to this, I, I rail against Tim Draper so bad on, on this podcast. Um, he, you know, he came from money. He came from an investment background. His parents were um, investors. And... And this idea that he somehow has this great foresight just because he had a lot of money and he had an idea and, and he was surrounded in this space. Like when I feel like when you grow up with that, it's just kind of like you've learned all this stuff through osmosis through your parents or, th- or through the people around you. And it's not that you have this second sight or this, you know, amazing foresight it's just that you've just been around it more often and so you are able to see smaller details that people who aren't around it their entire life notice and that's great because in some things that's important right so if you're an investor and you're an investment and you work in investment you want to see those little details or else mm-hmm. you're going to be just really bad in investment so i think that you know we have people like that in in crypto, and that's great. And and they've seen the details, or they work with this te- technology. And like JJ's a perfect example. Like JJ's worked, you know, done some educational training, and he can read white papers pretty pretty well. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody hands him a white paper, and when I read a white paper, it doesn't really make sense to me because I don't have any training in that sense. Right. But like I'm not going to go to JJ when I break my arm, right? Because he's smarter than me about reading white papers. Yeah. And so we're at this phase now where so many people are throwing out these words of deflationary currency and we need to change the paradigm and we need to switch the entire world over to Bitcoin and have deflationary currency versus inflationary currency because inflation is bad and blah, blah. And, and so like my sandwich raised, you know, went from $5 to $12 in the last five years. See, inflation is really bad. Hold on, Michael. I'm I'm going to. Can I interrupt you just for one second? So, a simple way to put this is, or like a really good example in crypto is, you get people who are really good traders in the market, and then Mm -hmm. they start talking about the the math or the programming or the mining of crypto as if they're experts in that, and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Or you get people who are masters at the the, masters at programming that start right. getting into econ- economics and people start thinking oh they must be economics geniuses because right. they're so good at they're so good at trading right. a market transferable now, expertise is kind of a myth yeah yes. so now taking that we have this issue of people thinking they understand inflationary versus deflationary currencies michael back to you yeah so i would love so i i wanted to start reaching out to actual e- economists PhDs, professionals, people who, who do this for a living and start asking them why, first off, like why we have an inflationary system right now, like why we moved off the gold standard. And then do you think that going back to a deflationary worldwide currency would somehow be better for us overall? And so, I have my opinions, but I'd love to just kind of get your right. opinion first. All right, so here's here's a, a there's a very deep principle in finance called the risk reward trade off. Have you ever heard of this? I have not. Um, so if you look at the the risky risky types of assets like stocks, 
over time they they tend to they tend to climb more but in a given year stocks crash a lot right you're really risking it um uh gold is a really risky asset so i mean you know if you held gold from like 1990 to like 2011 you were rolling in the money and if you held gold from like 2012 to now you're not so much rolling in the money so there's there's risk involved right uh but over time and in real estate is another these these risky assets tend to go up a lot and then you have you know on the other end you have like the US dollar is a very non-risky asset uh the only way um it has a big you know sudden crash is if you have a huge amount of a huge burst of unexpected inflation or something like that um or if you know the United States defaults which whatever like some catastrophe <laughs> happens but but probably not going to happen and and you know it's pretty safe but every year it loses 2% of its value. Almost like clockwork. Really, really regular. It loses 2% of its value a year. And so you, that's a, I mean, that's not a good long-term return. You wouldn't hold, if you hold your money in cash, you're going to essentially lose wealth at the rate of 2% a year if you're in dollars, right? Um, but the, the volatility of that is very low. We haven't had major inflation since, you know, the, the early 80s. Um, it's been pretty nice and even, and um, and when you get paid, you know your paycheck. You know exactly how much uh, you're going eggs and milk or whatever. You're not exactly, almost exactly how much eggs and milk you're going to be able to buy in three weeks with that money. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so the volatility w- w- and with stocks, you don't know if you got paid an Apple stock or something, it might go way down by the time you want to buy some milk with it, right? So um, you you hold Apple stock for the long run. Or, or whatever stock you have, or, or gold, or houses, or whatever you have, for the long run. So there's this trade-off between long-run, you know, expected returns, like appreci- expected appreciation over the long run, and, uh, you know, risk in the short run. And so people it, who, yeah, anyway, does that make there, sense, like that, that basic trade-off? Yeah. That, that makes perfect sense. Is there any reason, like... Is there any reason that you would want an inflationary system, like an economic system that actually, I mean, would you want to incentivize people to spend their money? Uh, well, yeah, but we'll, we'll get to that later. But here's the point. If you're talking <laughs> about what, what makes a good uh, currency, right? Like what, what makes a good sort of system of payments, like a, a medium of exchange, as we call it in economics? Um, this is do the you, crypto question. <laughs> the crypto question. So what I, I contend that what makes a good medium of exchange is that you know how much you'll be able to buy with it. That if I'm going to buy a pizza, I know how much pizza I'm going to be able to get for my labor for, you know, or whatever I, I sell, right? Yeah. Most people sell their labor, you, you're a worker, you know, you, I don't know, Jeff, you like compose songs. And so you sell some songs and then you make some money and then you go buy pizza with the money. And you want to know how much pizza you'll be able to buy with that money. You want something very predictable in the short term. But the trade-off for pre- being predictable in the short term is you must accept a shitty uh, rate of long-term return. So a shitty rate of long-term return is basically inflationary. So the U.S. dollar is a great thing to buy pizza with because you're, you, know, you know how much pizza you'd be able to buy with it. Also, you know, suppose I had some Bitcoin and I were thinking to buy pizza. You know the story of the guy who bought pizza with Bitcoin right at the beginning, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's like, did, oh, it's yeah. so cool. I could buy this pizza. And he buys it, and then Bitcoin's worth like millions of dollars, and he bought a $10 million pizza. 
Well, yeah. sucks to be you. You just spent $10 million. I'm sure that guy's financially fine. Um, but he spent $10 million on a pizza. So you don't want to do that. So the, the upside risk is also bad for buying pizza. Like, you know, so it's, it's like if it goes way down, I can't get any pizza and then I'm hungry. And if it goes way up, then I just spent $10 million on a goddamn pizza. So like yeah. these, these cu- currencies that are expected or, or assets of any kind, Apple stock, gold, houses, whatever, that are expected to appreciate in the long run are not good things to buy pizza with in the short run. So uh, cryptocurrency, if, if a cryptocurrency is going to become a good medium of exchange, I feel like it's got to be inflationary. Deflationary currency is too tempting a prospect. There's no reason to pay for pizza with something that's going to be expected to be more valuable five years from now. Hold on to it. Use your shitty dollars for pizza. I don't want to buy yeah. pizza with something good. I want to buy pizza with something crappy. <laughs> you know? And so that that's why... That's why inflationary currency, of course, you know, there's a classic form of this called Gresham's Law, where they used to make, uh, you know, I guess, I think it was England tried making coins with different kinds of metals, and one of the metals was more valuable than the other. And at some point, someone realized that all the coins that were made with the valuable metal had been taken out of circulation because people hoarded them for the metal, and they just used the crappy coins to pay for stuff. This so is something that we come, yeah, this is something we come across so much, and we actually mention it on the show all the time, is like, yeah. Uh, people arguing that Bitcoin is such a great medium medium of exchange. It's like, uh, maybe store a value arguments better. Uh, right. Anyway, yeah. And I keep telling people like, if you buy if you buy a cup of coffee with a Google uh, like a part of your Google stock, right? What's the long term value? Like, right. there is no long term value in in that cup of coffee. It's short term value. What? But right. you have long term value in the Google stock. Right. Hang on to your Google stock and pay some worthless. Worthless, worthless U.S. dollars, you know. Yeah. What's <laughs> a good thing? A, a good medium of exchange is something you always want to give away, and um, and it's something where you have predictability of how much you'll be able to buy, and so that's why the whole idea of deflationary currency. The question is why then why in the Middle Ages or whatever did you have these deflationary currencies like gold? Right? People would actually use gold to pay for stuff. They'd carry sacks of gold coins around. That that's a thing that really happens sometimes. That's historically unusual. Usually you don't see people carrying sacks of precious metal around. But in the Middle Ages in Europe, when you had massive fragmentation of governments and you couldn't rely on anyone like prince's currency or whatever, you had to carry around a sack of gold. So why did they do that? It's because the risk-reward trade-off broke down. And there there was no safe asset because you didn't have a U.S. government. You didn't have some stable thing to give you your your inflationary currency that lost money at 2% a year but was really stable, right? And so you had to pay for stuff with Apple stock, which was gold at the time, right? Like you had, you had to use the crappy medium of exchange because you didn't have anything else. That was all there was. And so you didn't have this nice like choice, right, like you do now. But now we have this choice. And as long as, you know, the U.S. doesn't put some absolutely crazy people in power who, who unleash rampant inflation, which it might, we can talk about that later, as long as that doesn't happen, the US dollar is really, really safe and crappy. And it's cause it's crappy that you want that you want to pay. So I guess hey, the no, question no, that no, I have- Hold on one second before yeah. you admit. Noah, I want to make sure your microphone is not impeded on, are you on a laptop or- I am on a laptop. Or? How's the microphone? Just, can you hear? 
Yeah, I think it, it's kind of um, the. It's, it might be covered by something part of the time that you're talking. I just want to make sure that it's how about now? So we get a clear voice. That sounds great. Michael, okay. go ahead. I, I just moved it closer. All right. Um, so, what would happen if we did go back to a deflationary currency? It just, if if we got rid of inflationary currency entirely and everybody just used Bitcoin, what what? would be the negative ramifications like what was the negative ramification of in the middle ages everybody using gold no what i know exactly what would happen someone would invent an inflationary cryptocurrency and then everyone would hoard the deflationary ones and make actual trades using the inflationary one because they wouldn't want to hang on to it oh that's ripple (laughs) yeah Yeah. everyone would be using (laughs) ripple Well, no, Ripple isn't isn't inflationary. It's it's no, a, there's a set okay, there's a I, set I, number. I don't just, really they, know. They use something like they use just, something like like Grin, which is inflationary. Okay, or yeah. the other one. I'm just inflationary, joking. Just like, uh. inflationary cryptocurrency would be much better to use as a medium of exchange if if the world collapsed and we had to use crypto to buy everything instead of U.S. dollars. Like so, that's kind of the yeah that's the idea behind the Mimble Wimble. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Mimble Wimble. I don't know. It's like Dr. Seuss. I have no idea. <laughs> this is the world of wacky crypto. Yeah, I know. <laughs> or we have anyway. Dogecoin. <laughs> yeah. So I just think like I see a lot of people in the, not just in the crypto space, but like, you know, Neil Stevenson and Neil Stevenson books, assuming that a good long-term store of value is also a good medium of exchange. When in fact, I think that's usually the opposite. Hold on, hold on, hold on really fast. We lost you there. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah. Can you hear me now? Yes, yeah, we can perfect. hear you. All right. Yeah, so so people assume that like a good medium of exchange and a good store of value are the same thing, when in fact, in a well-functioning market, they're actually the opposite. In a poorly functioning market like medieval Europe, you know, whatever. Like, you, ha- you use what you have to use. Mm, okay, so it's because there was a lack of government and a lack of cohesive community that could create something that was a better medium exchange, they were forced to use the shitty medium of exchange. Exactly. That's exactly right. Okay. We don't want to model I, ourselves off of medieval Europe. No. Yeah. <laughs> we just, yeah, that would yeah. be bad. Um, so it's like, I, did, I get a lot were, Yeah. No, go. I no. get a lot of complaints. They say, well, the government is stealing from us by, by having, infla- having the U.S. dollar be an inflationary currency. It's theft from the people. And my response to them is, at any single bank, you can buy a CD, you can buy a, uh, uh, a bond, you can buy all these things that are deflationary or stable, and it's open to any single person. Like anybody can go out and just, you can walk into a bank and you can buy a bond. Do and it, so, yeah. And, and so, I'm, so, I'm, so I think my, the frustration I have is there are so many people who just are uneducated about finances and they and they believe that the government and banks are against them when these options are right at their fingertips and they're just and they just do, either don't know about it or choose not to 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 use it that's exactly right you know my um my grandmother lived through the depression and she was very much into certificates of deposit she thought that was the best thing you should always get certificates of deposit because <laughs> you know in the aftermath of the depression when the FDIC had just been invented you know that was that was hard money like, that was like, that was, as you'd put it, deflationary. You want the certificate of deposit and anyone can get it. You didn't have to sit up at late at night worrying about the stock market, you know. Um, so she was very big and, and, you know, like, she would always buy certificates of deposit. So are, are bonds technically 
keeping up with inflation? Like, are are they a yeah. safe are they safe bet if you want to just keep your money stable? Yeah. So, I mean, you can buy a kind of a government bond called a TIPS, which is an inflation adjusted bond, which goes up at exactly the rate of inflation. So it's neither inflationary or deflationary by fiat. <laughs> so that's a that's a stable fiat money exists. Okay. No one buys pizza with it, but it does exist. Yeah. And is that so, something yeah. you you can just keep it keep at your bank? Like you like if you yeah. have five thousand dollars and you want to put two thousand dollars in a T bond? Or, or, yeah, a, absolutely. or a tip? Or a tips, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. You can uh, you can get your bank to buy it for you. You can buy it online at Scott Trade or what is it? T D Ameritrade. You can like yeah, you can just just fire it up and and buy it. And is there any uh, penalty for selling? So, like with a CD, if I lock it in for six months or a year, I I technically I can't. If I have to pull it out, I lose some of the some that's of the. Right. Uh, that's right. So with, so with, with CD, that's with any any sorry, bond. By the way, any bond has a maturity, and short term bonds that you can like withdraw very quickly, like in you know a month or something will have a much lower interest rate than bonds usually will have much lower interest rate than a bond that you have to like leave in there for 10 years before it matures. Um, gotcha. And so it's, that's called liquidity. Liquidity is how fast you can get your money out. Um, of course, it's also a term in finance for like, you know, how many other people are trading this thing. So how easy it is to sell this thing if you need to unload your position. But it's the same thing with bonds. And it's, uh, you know, you, you, you get a liquidity premium. So um, if you want to if you want to be able to get your money at any time, like a checking account or something, or even a savings account, or a CD, even or like a short-term bond, you're talking. You're not going to get a good interest rate, especially now when interest rates are very low. But you, um, if you want, uh, if you're willing to leave your money in there for a while, like if you're saving for retirement or for like your kid's college or wedding or whatever the hell, you can leave it in there for a long time. You can buy long-term stuff, and then you'll get a better interest rate. So there's this thing that financial planners do called duration matching, where they get you bonds that will mature exactly when you need the money. Oh, nice. So, yeah. So there are options out there. So it's it's not like, of course. And it's pretty. You can just do this at any single bank, right? Any bank. Go walk into okay. Chase. Walk into a Bank of America. So I think this is the the thing I get so frustrated with about with crypto Twitter is that just. You have these people who are, you know, borderline geniuses when it comes to coding and creating code, and they don't know what bonds are or they don't know what CDs are at their bank. <laughs> and, and and I went to school, so I went to school That's at funny. UC San Diego, which was uh -huh. an extremely nerdy school. You know, lots mm -hmm. of engineers, lots of pre-med people, and I used to joke around about um, about IQ versus intellect, and I and. Mm -hmm or like street smarts where I'd right. say, you know, this person could build a car, but they can't drive it three blocks away using, using a map. They can't right. figure out how to navigate down the street. Right. And just, and just the inability to, to connect with the real world. And, you know, usually those people are like either, you know, somewhere on the spectrum or just, you know, didn't go outside that often or just social, socially awkward. Right, um, right. And I feel like that's such a, a large percentage of people in crypto Twitter. And when people are coming into contact with these people on Twitter, they seem normal or they seem somewhat competent because they're talking about what they're really good at. It's and then when they Twitter, throw in these the other comments, this is, this is everywhere, not just Twitter. This is kind of everywhere. 
But yeah. Right. yeah, there's yeah. there's so much. The reason that we're mentioning Twitter right now a lot is because there's not a whole lot of attention on crypto, and a lot of the conversations are taking place on Twitter. But you get this stuff on YouTube, you get this stuff in on Coin Telegraph, and all that stuff. It's kind yeah. of everywhere. Yeah. So sure. Yeah. So and we, I think you know, to the people I've known in crypto, are um, are of a very special and and you know, not all. But a lot are this very special personality type where they're fiercely independent. They want to be independent from the system. They want to believe they know something the rest of people don't. They want to believe that they have taught themselves skills that other people don't know. Um, and they're sort of like fiercely independent iconoclasts and autodidacts. And um, that, that can be really healthy and it's a very useful skill to have. Uh, you know, and it often comes with a healthy dose of contrarianism, but it can also be a harmful. A healthy dose of what? Contrarianism, you know, like okay. where your skepticism. That's what we are. Yeah, like but, <laughs> yeah, but like it also, um, the danger is that you insist is that like, again, if you sort of put the cart before the horse and you say, um, you know what, like, if there's an institution, I'm going to be independent from it, and I'm not going to trust my money to a bank. I'm not going to trust the government just because it's there, just because it's a big institution, and I'm going to reject it. You know, so instead of rejecting things because you see that the big institution has problems with it, you reject it just because it's big and just because it's there and just because, you know, fuck you, yeah, I'm me. It's being anti-establishment just because there is an establishment is not yeah. a very good reason. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, like, it can, it, maybe it's fun, right? But it can be harmful to you. And... The people who could buy CDs won't do it because it's a bank. And then there's this big, you know, organization out there deciding what happens to your money. Well, there's a, there's a, so there's a, a lot of people who find identity in things, too, especially when they feel like they've discovered something. It's like, okay, here, this is what I can attach my identity to, or I'll create a new identity around it. And um, I do also feel like there's this thing in crypto where it gave a lot of people an opportunity to how should i say this um it uh it 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 gave people a way to do what the system does on their own and when other people see that other people who don't have a lot of money they think oh wow i can do that too i don't need the system fuck the system like it's kind of yeah i I don't know how to describe that but it's um it's like uh yeah, it's it's like this. Oh, I, I don't actually need to <clears throat> change socioeconomic status. <clears throat> I can do it on my own, or something like that, or whatever. I don't know exactly. Well, they've how gotten to screwed discover. over by the system for the last. I mean, to, and to be That's fair, it. we, you know, we took our 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 eyes off the prize with our government, with our economic system, and a lot of shitty things happened over the last twenty years because of. Oh that. hell yeah. And I yes, think people did. are just jaded, jaded about the system in general, not realizing that it was the people in the system, not the system itself. That, and I think so that's, an, that's what the disconnect is. So people who saw an opportunity, people who feel like they've been fucked over for a while are now seeing an opportunity, um, and that's what's getting people excited. Then throw a couple identities at it, and you've got kind of a cult, really. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, wouldn't it be nice if... if you could escape sort of this downward wealth path that it seemed like people were on for so many years. Like, um, 
the Great Recession and the housing crash and stuff like that, and the wage stagnation that you know that lasted 15 years, really just made everybody feel like they were kind of getting poorer, barely hanging on, and not able to enjoy the middle class life that they that their parents enjoyed that they expected to be able to have. And so here along comes crypto. It's a it's a way to get rich quick. Uh, you know, you hear about your friend who just bought a few bitcoins and is now a millionaire, and you're like, wow, I could do that. And some people did, and then a lot of people didn't. Yeah, and a lot of people so. bought it at twenty thousand and <laughs> are dead broke now. It's like it's like, uh, yeah. and then to be to be able to to see that and do that as not a part of that system is like, yeah, that's right. That to right. me is, yeah. So then, what's your take on Keynesian economics versus Austrian economics? Because this is a big thing on crypto Twitter. People big they claim they're not everywhere. It's just yeah. It's like Austrian economics this and Austrian economics that, and and then they and then when you call them out on it, they're like, "Oh, I'm not actually saying Austrian economics." I'm just like, "Well, you, okay, you, you did. literally <laughs> just did like a thousand times, but okay." Yeah. So, do you have right. an opinion on on either one? Uh, I mean, the the problem is that these ideas are vague ideas. Um, Austrian economics claims to be motivated by like pure logic, axiomatic deduction, blah blah. What it actually is is a bunch of vague talking points. Um, Austrian economics, for example, has a principle they call the human action axiom, which is that humans act. <laughs> that's the axiom. Of course, any mathematician would be like, well, what the hell does that mean? That's not well-defined. That's not an axiom. Like In mathematics, axioms are like, okay, well, you can pick a point here, and then you'll, it'll be included in the set, or something like that. And then um, their Austrian's axiom is humans act. Well... <laughs> you think? I mean, like that's that's not an axiom. It's just a it's just a a statement that sounds good that you can sort of like everyone can intone, and then everyone sort of thinks, oh, you know, that um uh that sounds good, and then sort of paste their own meaning on top of it. Like, of course, you know, like humans act. That means that like like you know humans are really important, or or people are able to like um always well anyway I, like there's a, i won't even go into it the point is it's vague and it's not concrete and that is true of almost all the stuff that i've seen of of austrian economics thought um it's it's very vague and it's a lot of it's open to interpretation it's written in in you know english it's written in wordy words so it's a little bit like you know reading foucault or derrida or something like that um that in, you know, like you, it sort it sort of becomes this Rorschach test where you paste meaning onto it, and then yet yet Austrian economics also plays to people's political uh, prejudices, where they come up with these very firm policy prescriptions from from this vague, you know, sort of talking points. They come up with these very firm policy prescriptions, like the government should not do quantitative easing because it will cause inflation. And Say that we're again, losing, Noah. We're losing. The, so quanti remember quantitative easing. Of course. Remember that. Yeah. So, so all the Austrian people said, oh, quantitative easing is going to cause inflation. And uh, it didn't. Um, did we know it wasn't going to? No, but we, you know, anybody who had looked at the experience of Japan, which invented quantitative easing, could have predicted that that wouldn't happen. Um, but anyway, so it didn't cause inflation. And then the Austrians had several reactions to this. Some just were just like, oh, I guess that didn't happen. Um, and, you know, sort of revise their beliefs, but most reacted some other way. So, uh, you know, some came up with some, like, very ad hoc explanation for why it hadn't happened. And some said, well, you know, 
quantitative easing itself is defined as inflation, which isn't true. That's not what inflation is. But they said, oh, you know, government printed money, that's what inflation is. So, of course, it caused inflation by definition. And it was very stupid. Um, but it was a giant egg on the face of all the people who claimed to be Austrians. And, you know, Peter Schiff was this guy. He was a big sort of gold bug. And he... Uh, we know about him. Peter Schiff predicted the crisis, blah, blah, blah. I went on his radio show. And, you know, he, he gave very specific predictions for inflation that was going to happen, kind of like the world will end on this day. It didn't happen. And, you know, anyone who still takes that guy seriously, as, you know, as, a, as an economist, is, has some issues, right? And um, so many, Yeah, so many people do, especially in crypto, because now he's a voice there, too. Right, yeah. of course he is. Um, can, you ex- can you explain really quickly... Uh, what happens in quantitative quantitative easing? Because quantitative I think easing I, is I, the government. I keep, yeah, I I keep hearing people in crypto say, "Well, the government just prints money," and from my experience, that's not how it works. So well, it doesn't I really print money, but it's something like that. So what the government does, the the Federal Reserve um, is a bank, right? It's a central bank, but it's a bank, and it has accounts. You can have an account at the Federal Reserve, and that account will pay you a little bit of money. Uh, like a savings account, right? A little better than a savings account, actually. So the Fed is the bank of banks. So banks themselves have banking accounts, and those banking accounts are at the Federal Reserve. So instead of printing money, what the bank actually says is, hey, we've created a bank account with this much money in it. Here is your checkbook, you know? And that's what it does. So it it creates these, uh, these bank accounts called reserve accounts and gives them to banks. Right. So it's like it's not printing real physical money. There's no you know, it's not using a printing press. It's it's but it's creating virtual cash by suddenly creating this bank account and handing it to a bank and saying, here, like, you have this account now and like it'll tether. pay you a little bit of interest, <laughs> I guess. Like, I don't I don't know how that works. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. So so quantitative easing. Suppose that a bank has some like bond on its books, which could be a government bond or some shitty housing back bond that they stupidly bought before the crisis or whatever, right? They have some bond. And so the Fed says, hey, give us that bond. We'll give you this bank account. And the bank says, okay, here, you can have this bond and now give me that bank account. So now they have cash instead of a bond. That's what quantitative easing is. Okay, so that's what I've been trying to tell people where... They are, you know, quote unquote, printing money, but they're buying bonds with it. And then don't they eventually sell the bond back and more or less burn that money? No. So, so usually in the, in the past, they would do that. Now what they do is that they hold on to the bond until it pays off and then send the extra money to the treasury. Okay. So they send, so, so, so all those housing back bonds that were shitty and were about to crash in the crisis, actually most of those ended up paying off in the long run, amazingly. Um, partly because we, we lowered interest rates, but so, so those bonds paid off and, and, you know, the mortgage, the mortgages got paid, the banks paid the bonds and, and then all that money went to the fed and the fed says here, treasury, United States government have some money and it paid a bunch of money. So actually quantitative easing turned out to be a moneymaker for the U S government. Amazingly. And did that increase inflation? I mean, how, and, and did it increase inflation more than the 2%? That it did mean. not. It did not. Um, hmm. There are various theories as to why quantitative easing would increase inflation. Um, more checking accounts, more reserve accounts, and less bonds 
if you think that reserve accounts are more liquid than bonds, you know, so you can use reserve accounts to like pay for stuff and buy stuff, but you don't really use bonds to buy stuff. If you, if you think that's true, then that's one way that quantitative easing could cause inflation. But it turned out that that didn't happen. And banks simply kept the, uh, the reserve accounts, they kept that cash sitting in a, in a you know, metaphorical vault, sitting in its little electronic imaginary vault. They kept the cash there. They didn't go out and give it to people and spend it and lend it and blah, 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 blah. So it didn't really make its way into the economy. And so inflation did not result. So gotcha. the bonds were sitting in the... So, so banks still had a, a little electronic vault, right? And it used to have a bond in there. And now it has a Fed bank account in there. And that's it. That's the only change that happened. And so that's not so, going to cause inflation. That's not going to do anything. So if they had taken that those created accounts and said, hey, Noah, hey, JJ, hey, Michael, we're going to pay off your student loan and your mortgage instead of giving it to the bank. Would that have potentially caused inflation? Maybe. Uh, so, so if they paid off people's loans, probably not, because who, who do people own the loan, owe the loans to? A bank. So then people, yeah. they'd give it to people. So that would have been fairer, right? As it is, what happened is the banks took all the money and made all the made all the money off QE, and so it sort of it exacerbated inequality and, and rewarded these shitty banks that had caused the crisis, and it was very unfair. If they had paid off normal people's, if they had used QE to pay off mortgages, to pay off people's, I guess, student loans or whatever, but especially mortgages, then uh, people would have just stuck that money in the bank. And then gone about their business, and it, it, it would have done the same thing, except that normal people would have the money instead of bank shareholders. But they didn't do that because uh, Republicans didn't want that. Yeah. And it so was very politically unpopular. Actually, a lot of Democrats easing, didn't want it either. Quantitative easing isn't bad, just like gov- our government isn't bad. It was just the people that were in place that were pulling the levers didn't make the decisions in the best interest of the average person. That's right. They, they favored the elites, the, the bankers, over the normal people when doing QE. And of course, you know, QE was still probably a good idea because you know, it took these shitty bonds off of the books of these banks and it stabilized these banks because if the banks collapse and stop being able to lend to like, local businesses or, or mortgages or whatever, like, the economy does really bad and that's really bad. But so it was, QE was on balance good for the economy, but it was not done in the most fair way and it rewarded a lot of people who didn't deserve to be rewarded while letting a lot of normal people, you know, sort of uh, like hanging them out to dry. And that was bad. So QE probably should have done more bailing out of individuals, but there was just no political appetite for it at the time. Yeah. Cool. That that makes sense. That clears up a lot. I have another question, Noah, before we have to wrap up. And hopefully this isn't a long one. But one, one argument I get for uh, regarding volatility and something like Bitcoin. Since Bitcoin has a limited supply, right now it is very volatile. But once it starts to reach that, that limited supply number, 21 million, it will be so distributed that the volatility will not be able to move. Kind of like, I don't know, I guess my example was going to be gold, but gold is very volatile. Is. is there is there a possibility that once you hit a certain distribution, the volatility will lessen, or is that just not how it works at all? Like what well, is that's the re- probably what not makes how it works the, at all. What is what makes the U.S. dollar so stable? 
like how does like versus something that is distributed the the fed so the fed is is you know this very powerful uh entity that stabilizes the um the dollar by having an inflation target and the fed will put money into and out of the economy through again the granting or taking away of these reserve accounts it will do that in order to stabilize the rate of inflation if they see inflation too high they'll you know like uh take reserve account they'll take reserves out and if they see inflation too low they'll uh, they'll put reserves in or they'll do it but they'll but they'll do it what they have to do and they have like essentially massive amounts of power to do this and they promise we're going to keep it at two percent and people believe them and so it stays at two percent it's so just that's fed a, credibility that's that's a lot of control for one organization to have that's a lot of power and so right. that means that that governments that aren't able to run that well-oiled of a machine could have crazy economic problems which they do um yes because they can't sta- stabilize their own currencies that's right so so in order for a cryptocurrency to be distributed and be as stable as something like the dollar, you would need a system or an organization to be in charge of stabilizing it, basically. Pro- that's the only way we've ever figured out how to do that. Yes. Everything wonder- else had a non-stable price. Yeah, yeah I, because I, every I really- single stable coin, quote unquote, is pegged to a government-controlled currency, the U.S. dollar. Or, that's no, right. that's not true. They're not all pegged to that. Some are actually pegged... Well, actually, yeah, they are. Yeah, they're all pegged to stable fiat so currencies. If you, if you think about this in terms of the risk-reward trade-off, there's this incredibly deep, fundamental financial reason why fiat money crowds out other kinds of money, which is that the... Basically, so, so to maintain a peg... Right, a stable coin to maintain a peg has to have lots of resources behind it, and you can break the peg if you trade too much of it. You can break a stable coin if you if you trade too much of it. Um, yeah, and we've seen it broken a few times with Tether. Yeah. Right. So then, so but you can't. The, the reason you can't break the Fed is because you have to break the United States of America. Traders have to break the United States of America to break the Fed. So um, it's the- really hard to do. But, I mean, other countries have really great feds, too. I mean, obviously, because their currencies are stable. Right. Does that mean, like, so we, as organizations, as people, as humans, have figured out a way to do that. It's, ah, oh, man, that is tricky. I don't... We figured out a way to do it, but there's, there's no foolproof way. Like, you know, it, the United States could elect a government that's super irresponsible and you know, borrows we would never infinite amounts that. of money. We would never do that. But like we could, like actually, uh, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently released the Green New Deal and the people designing the Green New Deal uh, put a lot of faith in and recommended this this sort of heterodox uh, theory called, that calls itself Modern Monetary Theory or MMT, which is sort of like the exact opposite of Austrian economics, but probably just as crazy. <laughs> in my opinion, because uh, you know, it's also it also doesn't do a lot of like empirical work or careful numerical work. It like tries to use logic to prove a lot of very dramatic things. So in that sense, it's a little bit like Austrian economics, but with completely opposite conclusions and ideas. And um, uh, and so and so, if we elected a government that really put its faith in this kind of theory, like MMT. Um, which we might someday do, then they could 
create they could do policies which which cause cause people around the world to reject the full faith and credit of the United States government and then wacky crap begins and you know we really could become like Venezuela or Argentina or something like that right now it seems very remote but America has just gotten crazier and crazier for the last you know 10 or 20 years so it could if it keeps getting crazier and crazier someday we could eventually see the the fiat currency of the dollar completely collapse and at that point you'll will probably be wanting to hold on to be holding on to something else um, maybe Japanese yen, euros, but if those countries all collapse because they all depend on the United States military to protect them, maybe you want to be holding on to some Bitcoin. Yeah, that's I mean, well, that's the something that Andreas Antonopoulos says all the time is that is that crypto is kind of a backdoor for a lot of these catastrophes that could potentially take place. And a lot of people say, "Oh yeah, but that couldn't happen. That could that we you know, it's not like we could have a crisis or a genocide or anything like that." And it's like, "Well, you know, it wasn't like 100 years ago that yeah. we had a genocide." It, yeah. You don't even got to wait 100, you don't even got to go back 100 and years. And like and then people say, "Well, it would have it would have to take a really crazy person, you know, in office to say, "I hate the Fed," you know, like the guy who runs it's a jackass i'm just getting rid of all of it you know it's like <laughs> right uh, um. i would you know i mean it would it would definitely pay in in case of a breakdown of the global order it might pay to have some bitcoin but as a caution or or, or not even bitcoin but ether or whatever right crypto of some sort but here's a caution which is that trading crypto relies on the internet and on Hold a on, whole say that lot again. of you, you, trading crypto that. relies on the internet Trading crypto relies on extremely centralized technological structures that have been created. The, the internet is just as centralized, just as dependent on, you know, order and armies and governments and blah, 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 as banks are. The internet can collapse. You just have to disconnect the routers. You just have to, you know, yeah. unplug the internet. Someone can do that. We don't have this, like, magical distributed, like, BitTorrent internet, like that just exists you know there's cables you can cut the cables you you know you can you can yeah. shoot the satellites out of the sky there are there are people actually trying to develop alternate networks you know that run on sms or they run on yeah. other they run on satellites uh, right. you know uh, uh, whatever reflections and stuff like that stuff right that I you don't can understand. shoot down satellites with a laser you can <laughs> bomb towers you can slice cables you can do anything, and unless people have distributed energy sources with like solar power powering like independent radios, that's what so it would we take. So we should have some gold too, is what you're saying. Noah Smith is telling everyone to buy some Bitcoin because <laughs> Donald Trump's in office, and just in case Bitcoin fails, you should buy some gold. Maybe gold, but I would go. I would go for guns. <laughs> Ammunition, most importantly, <laughs> ammunition. I would go God. for especially the uh, the AK forty seven round, the um, um, the whatever that standard uh, that standard like big ass round that it uses. Um, go for AK forty seven <laughs> ammunition, um, Some and vests. and penicillin. penicillin. Get penicillin. Okay. So penicillin. Why, why is the AK forty seven round when AKs are banned in America? It's um, because they can work underwater. Yes, AKs are the hardiest, most robust guns, and all your like fancy guns, like your M16s, are ever going to fall mm. apart in like a month, and you're going to have your AKs. Yeah. 
Okay. Make sure you get a laser to shoot down some satellites too. China will have the lasers. They'll be yeah. they'll be shooting down the satellites because they don't want you to use your Bitcoin. But no, in all this seriousness, is taking, this is taking such a weird, weird turn. <laughs> I was I was hoping it would get here. We're, um, this Noah and I are old friends talking about lasers and guns. I mean, like yes, very um, much. Uh, but I mean, in, in all seriousness, uh, crypto is not just a joke. It actually could be something that you would want to turn to. And we've seen that in Greece and Venezuela, where people were like right. pretty excited to get into some just something that would mean that they would still have money in 10 days or whatever. Yes. So. As volatile as crypto is, it's nothing compared to Venezuelan currency. As yeah. Man, Venezuela <laughs> has gotten pretty crazy. I thought that it couldn't get worse, and now it's just... All the and, litter. And what's the, the other country? Zimbabwe? Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. With their trillion Zimbabwe dollar bill. Or? And Greece, yeah. $100 trillion. Yeah. I think Greece is never that bad. Greece got stabilized. No. The, the rest of the Europeans rescued Greece. Yeah. But Venezuela and Zimbabwe, complete collapse. And um, yeah. America, you know, if people just, if like our entire politics keeps getting eaten by Twitter, we could collapse someday too. Yeah, well, that's your responsibility, Noah, to keep Twitter, Same. Keep it, to, to keep it from destroying the world. I bet that's you're too, that's for president of Twitter. One tweet at a time. I, I know some of the people who run Twitter. I told them to put me in charge. They were like, no, asshole. <laughs> I want to be in charge of Twitter. You should just start calling yourself CEO of Twitter. You know what? You should actually get those other other Noah. Like you should get late night Noah to call himself CEO of Twitter, and then like just run with it until everybody is calling you that, and they will have no choice. So, that's a that's yeah. a damn good plan. Wow. Yeah, who needs Jack? We'll just, Jack <laughs> no, no will be the boss. He's like meditating. He won't even notice that like the corporate <laughs> boardroom coup that I carried out. <laughs> he's he's meditating in his Bitcoin room. He's like, just, oh, he is. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, we're just going to get you in a lot of trouble. Yeah. yeah All right. Uh, well, yeah. Noah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, it was thank so helpful. Thank you for having me on. It's been yeah, fun. Yeah, hopefully we, we can have you on again in the future. We want to, we want to ask, we want to like, yeah, we, we need your awesome. help. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. We want to ask more questions down the, uh, down, down All the right. Maybe, maybe we can find some other fun people like maybe Vitalik. Have you had him on? He's a fun guy. Ooh. We haven't had Vitalik, but we don't, uh, we don't but, have the the social clout yet. So, but maybe we're you know we're getting there. We're working our way up. So a thousand people have downloaded our shows. Yes, that's all just right. crossed over a thousand thousand downloads on on right. Podbean. So that's you know it's, it's well. I'll baby see if steps. I can help get Vitalik for your show. That would yeah, be I amazing. I noticed he does he does follow you, which I thought was pretty cool. Oh yeah, and we he, he, have he, lunch he retweets sometimes. you. Do you re- no <laughs> really yeah, no yeah yes oh, that's crazy that's awesome. I did not know that. Yeah, no, he's that's a great pretty guy. impressive. Oh. But um <laughs> ask him where he gets those t shirts. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Does he, does he have them like custom made just for himself? <laughs> I want a space unicorn t shirt too. Oversize. Yeah. Nice. Yes. <laughs> well he's an incredibly thin person, you know. He, he is. So he probably just can't find shirts looks that oversized. fit him well enough? Yes, exactly. He's a dan- he's a he's a he's a dancer too. That guy's a dancer. I've seen him dance. That I did not know. Wow. I don't know. Now we're just making fun of him. Yeah, we no, we actually really... We're, the, Vitalik, it's funny. We talk about all these personalities and all these these idiots on Twitter, and Vitalik is the one person who doesn't make a fool out of himself. He's the one person who actually... Okay. The only time he steps, st- steps a bit 
out of line is when he's actually putting somebody else in their face in their place. In their like, place, uh, that's Craig. right. Yeah. It, like, you know, talking about the Craig Wright dude, like just like standing up, Vitalik is like, he's a fraud, why the fuck is he even here? Yeah. That was, a, that was a very special moment where he just grabbed the microphone and told somebody off. But yeah, we would love to have Vitalik on. So tell awesome. him that we we need his help. We'll All do. right, everybody. Uh, that's the show. 